Last Wednesday, <clears throat> I began teaching by talking about alarms. And if you remember, I shared about a break-in at my own office, which is where someone broke into the glass door and came in and, and robbed us, burglarized us. It's corrected by an attorney friend of mine. Um, of some sunglasses. Well, you know what? Tonight I'm going to be a little more careful with my illustrations because that very night, last Wednesday night, after we all left, late in the night, somebody broke through these glass doors and broke into the church. And they didn't take anything. They just kind of roamed around and, and made a little bit of a mess. And then two days ago this week, a friend of mine who's in my profession, who's also an eye doctor, had $5,000 worth of stuff stolen from his office in broad daylights. So it seemed like life was kind of imitating my introduction last week. So tonight I'm going to use a different opening illustration, and I'm going to tell you a story about a group of guys attending a Bible study. And they go to bed that night, and the next morning they wake up and there's a brand new Ferrari in their driveway, <laughs> free of cost, no charge. So let's see if, let's see if that can come true, okay? But uh, I'm not sure I, I'm so sure I want that to come true because I don't think I could afford the uh, insurance um, upkeep and tags on a, on a Ferrari, even if, the, even if they gave you the keys. Um, but the episodes of theft in the past week did get me thinking on that theme a little bit more. And, and theft deterrence, both from a practical standpoint in my office and, and here at the church. And my friend is already taking steps, as am I, to make sure that his office staff are a little more careful about letting people in who are, are new to wander around and, and, and shop. Some years ago, back when we were talking about this as a group, a, a group of us were talking about, you know, ways we could, you know, d d d deter theft in our office and, and the, the police and, you know, gosh, you know, they, they've got so much on their plate already and how can we expect them to do more and what, you know, what alarms and camera systems. We were having this conversation and one of the guys came up with a brilliant idea and he said, if there was only a way to trap the burglars inside the office after they'd broken in, then we'd have them red-handed and the police would have to do something. And I started thinking about that and it reminded me of the Indiana Jones movie, right? When he takes the golden idol and puts the bag of sand in there and, and all of a sudden, you know, the walls start shaking and the, and the, and the arrows start flying, the rock starts rolling and, he, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a booby trap. He's been, he's, he's, it's, a, it's a theft deterrent. It's trying to trap him inside where, of course, he'll, he'll, he'll die. So I started talking at this meeting, and I said, well, maybe we could trigger the sunglass case with, like, a switch. And when the switch went up, some kind of cage came down and trapped him there. Or maybe there would be these roll-down doors out the front. And then, of course, the practical, sensible person in the group said, well, gee, what if it went off during the day? And you're thinking, okay, well, a personal injury suit is probably worse than losing a few pair of sunglasses. So we gave up on that idea. But, you know, I still like the idea of that rock rolling down, chasing them, chasing them out the front door uh, where they came in. But there's a, there's a trap that's given to us in the book of Proverbs. A big, nasty, hairy, ugly, not what you thought it was, arrows flying at you, rocks chasing at you, run for your life, booby trap. And that trap is laid out for us in Proverbs in chapter 5. And that trap is adultery, fornication, inappropriate sexual attention or arousal outside of marriage. It's a trap. Proverbs 5 should be a well-worn passage and well-traveled by any man who seeks to live a wise and godly life. Psalm 23, you bet. Romans 8, sure. 1 Corinthians 13, we all love that chapter, right? 
Philippians 2, Psalm 119, Matthew 5, great, of course, beautiful, wonderful chapters in Scripture. But be sure you add Proverbs 5 to your list. Because in this manual for young adult men, which is, remember, what Proverbs really ultimately is and was, chapter 5 is one of many places where we see a significant warning in our pursuit of wisdom, godliness, and the fear of the Lord as men. So turn there with me in your Bibles, Proverbs 4, or on page 81 of your study, if you want to go in the study, it's all written out right there. And we're going to look at this today. So Proverbs 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 to start with. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Now, a little disclaimer here. Everything we're going to talk about today, it's in the Bible. And the commentators are pretty straight on this. So it's, uh, it's pretty straight talk to men. And it might, it's, it's going to surprise you, I think, when you see exactly what some of this stuff is. First of all, he says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. The word my, that personalization, doesn't come up much in Proverbs because we're, we're ultimately talking about the wisdom of God. But the father is giving my wisdom. He's giving him personal wisdom. He's, he's, giving him, he's giving him insight into his own experience. Someone once said that experience is that thing you get just moments after you needed to have it. Think about that. Experience is that thing you get just moments after you needed to have it. Oops, right? And I get the picture of a father like Solomon sharing with his young adult son, maybe you know, on the verge of his wedding, at an age when his sexuality is soaring, the young sons anyway, from his experience, his own mistakes, times when he got caught in the trap. And maybe it was the experience of sex outside of marriage that almost devastatingly destroyed the father's marriage with this young man's mother, his wife. Maybe it was an experience of sex before marriage, which left scars and carried baggage into the marriage bed for years. And he's sharing that wisdom, that experience. Maybe it was the all-too-common experience of viewing sex as a commodity, something we shop. And we do too much hefty window shopping, lustily licking up sweetness of some unnamed young girl who we feel is on display for our gratification. Experience. You get, out, you get it right after you could really use it. You reach out for the golden idol and the walls start moving and the arrows start flying. Solomon says, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Control of your sexual urges and mental images begins with listening. Incline your ear. Soaking in God's word, his teaching, scriptures, sage advice from godly men. Control of your urges and and, and mental images moves forward in guarding your mouth, speaking the truth, proclaiming the truth to yourself. You know, reminding yourself of the true things about God and his word and about what it means to be a godly man. Ty shared with us three weeks ago or so this this statement that I I loved. I wrote down my notes on that week and I, I knew I wanted to go back to that this week. We said we need special discernment because evil doesn't always obviously present itself. 
Evil doesn't always obviously present itself. It's a trap. Smells good, looks good, bait on a hook, cheese in a mousetrap. Solomon is sharing this, that kind of sexual discretion here. You see, while our lips should be guarding knowledge in what we speak, wisdom and discretion should come out of it. There's other things lips are used for other than speaking. And that's really what Solomon wants to talk about. He transfers us from the lips of speaking to the lips of the adulteress. Listen, verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden or strange woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. See, honey is the sweetest thing imaginable in in this text. There was no refined sugar. Sugarcane doesn't grow in Israel. There's no chocolate. There's no jelly beans. There's no pastries, right? There's honey. That's it. That's, that's the cream of the crop, the sweetest stuff there is. And he gives this picture of a woman. And careful, I want you to get this picture, but I don't want you to get it too well because that would kind of defeat the whole purpose of the teaching. He says that this woman, the, the, literally the Hebrew says, drippings off the honeycomb. Now, how would you do that? Imagine a woman, a beautiful woman, honeycomb. She's holding it up, right? You got to hold it up to get the drippings. Her head's tipped back and you get the image. It's pretty sexual, isn't it? He's using a very sensual sexual picture with this young man to, to, to start to, to start to understand, to smell the bait, to realize the allure, the power of sexual allure. He's playing into the message that, that, that the sexual desire and promised fulfillment is, has, is very potent. The the words in the ESV say, her speech is smoother than oil. But literally it says in Hebrew, her palate. The inside of her mouth is slippery. Wow. We're past PG-13 here, aren't we? Commentators see a double meaning here. The sensuality of a smooth mouth, it both means slick words of flattery that a woman would say to us about how smart we are and how good looking we are and how respectful we are and how you know but it also has to do with actual sexual mouth touch this is an obviously very erotic chapter of the bible so i told you it should be on your list of favorites right commentator longman said about the author in this situation he said he addresses this concern sexuality with all the rhetorical power he can muster because the temptation is great She's a forbidden woman, a strange woman. That means she's outside the covenant community. Covenant. Marriage. Strange. Any woman outside of a marriage to you is a strange woman. She's outside your covenant. She's forbidden. She's not your wife. You know, it was, was, I almost hesitate to use the word radical, but it really opened my eyes when I, when I, heard someone teach that when we steal visual images of another woman that's not our wife, it's not just lust, but it's theft. Because God created sexuality within a woman as a gift for her husband. So when I am aroused by that, I'm stealing what is meant for him. It's theft as well as it is lust. Experience. It's after you need it, you seem to get it. Sexual encounters with another woman brings 
bitter experience. The sweet turns better. In a table turning of words, the honey becomes bitter wormwood, and the soft, oily mouth becomes a two-edged sword. Did you hear that? Verse 4, in the, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. He moves on in verse 7 and 11 with this warning. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. In short, he's saying, avoid getting anywhere near a woman whose sexuality is being opened up for you. In images, in person, in the workplace, at the gym, on business trips, everywhere. Don't go near it. You know, this is the part of the message where I'm supposed to share a personal story. How would you like to be me right now? But I'm going to. And it's ironic because it's February. And I remember back about 35 years ago. Man, this is how powerful this stuff is. When a friend of mine in high school came over, he goes, I got something to show you, right? He said, the librarian threw this away. And he pulled out the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. The librarian tossed it in the trash because it was a Christian high school and she didn't want to put it on the shelf. So, he, so that was my first introduction to the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. For 35 years, gentlemen, give or take a year when I've just been too busy, I walk into a store that has magazines in February and I think, where's the swimsuit issue? I do. I'm not proud of that. And this is how... <clears throat> so I walk into CVS the other night. My daughter needed an ankle brace. So I'm thinking, I thought that thought. I thought, magazines are over there. I bet the SI swimsuit issue is over there. But I'm not going to go over there because I'm not going to go near the door to her house. So I go over in the first aid section. And I'm looking at bandages and wraps and ace bandages. And I find this ankle wrap. And on the end of the aisle, way in the back by the pharmacy, right next to the ace bandages is a little display with the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. And I'm like, come on. What are you doing to me here? You know? But those images are potent. They're powerful. Sexual arousal, particularly if carried out to satisfaction, is a powerful biologic force. God made it that way, right? He made it for man and woman to, to join together with that emotion and with that, those endorphins and that, that, that whole experience to bond them together. So when we have that experience outside of marriage, it messes it up. It messes it up everywhere. So you can't swim to shore in that riptide. Oh, I can handle it. I'm strong enough. No, you're not. You shouldn't even be on that beach, let alone trying to swim those currents. Adultery costs. It costs big. You get experience, but it's an expensive lesson. Listen to the charges on the bill. Verse 9, it costs you your honor, your splendor, your reputation. It costs you your strength, your life force, is what the Hebrew says in verse 10. Your labors go to another. Your wealth and your productivity is wasted. It costs you your legacy. Public shame, verse 14. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. There is no intended but, if, unless, or maybe here. Solomon doesn't give this, this young man any, well, but if, you know, if, if that's harmless. No, there's no harmless here. It's real. 
The word is just always an exception and without exception. So what are we to do with this powerful life force? Well, verse 15 through 19. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated, intoxicated always in her love. Commentator Waltke says this, the life-quickening enjoyment of making love with one's own wife provides a concrete protection against the forbidden woman. Enjoyment of sex, not procreation, is the theme here. And Longman had this to say, using quite provocative metaphors, the father tells the son to enjoy his wife. The best defense against adultery is the offense of joyful marital sex. Cistern, well, fountain. Have you ever, any of you ever, ever seen a cistern? Been to the Middle East? Okay. It's interesting, and I'm not going to be graphic here, but it's, it's feminine. All right? You go down into a cistern to draw water up out of it. It's chosen for a reason. Water here is a symbol of life. It's a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of the appropriate quenching of intense thirst, sexual thirst. And he tells us very specific where to quench that thirst, your own cistern, your own well. The cistern was an important, essential, and protected asset to store that water you know, when, when I grew up in Reedley, uh, we were, it was during the years when we had snow and water, and there wasn't really, we didn't talk about droughts very much. And I grew up, you know, there were no water meters on the house or anything like that. So then I moved to Fullerton for my schooling, and Patty and I, when we were first married, we were living in a condo, and, and there was a little garage, and there was like, you know, four condos in a row with all the garages. And right outside the garage were faucets. So that's where you'd wash your car. And the faucet on this side, where we were on the end, was broken. And so I used the faucet on the other side. And I'm washing my car one day. And then the next day I come out to leave for work. And the guy who lived next door, he lit into me for using his faucet. And I, I didn't know there were water meters or anything like that. And so I'd never heard of such a thing. I mean, who gets up, uptight about it? But see, I was using his water. And that's the analogy that Solomon's giving us of of the cistern in the water. Drinking water from your own well is a powerful image for God's gift of sexual satisfaction between a man and his own wife. Not someone else's wife, his wife. He says, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers. You know, and and I wouldn't, I guess I'm going to sound like a preacher here a little bit. And if I didn't say that, you know, that carries over to us men as, as fathers with regard to how we let our daughters dress. To dress in such a way to, to announce and, and offer their sexuality to other men. We have a responsibility there to protect that. The rule in our house is that the women go shopping, they bring home the clothes, they leave the tags on, the little fashion show for dad. If I say it goes back, it goes back. And, uh, and, and I've sent some things back. Verse 18 goes even further to change. This is, this is a classic. I love this. Verse 18 goes even further to change a cistern, cistern, which is a still, quiet pool of water, into a fountain, into a stream, into a self-replenishing source of water. Not that water had to be put into it, but water's coming up from within it. 
And, and the commentators are, you know, there's, there's, there's different takes on this. But I, 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 what I liked and I, I feel is, is true to Scripture is, is Solomon's telling his, his son, you'll let your fountain be blessed. He's saying, may you take care of your wife so well that she doesn't just quench your thirst, but she bubbles forth in that marriage relationship. That she becomes an active source of intimate joy. She's that special, that precious, that guarded. That's the kind of atmosphere you've developed with your wife in marriage. So with that kind of contrast, with that kind of gift that God has given us, and we lay that up against a picture from a magazine, a billboard, a website, seriously? Even an actual sexual encounter with with some woman? What are we thinking looking for water in other cisterns. We need to mind our own business and take care of our own fountains. Listen to verse 20 through 23. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of Yahweh, and he ponders all his path. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Our ultimate reminder for all of this wisdom is the watchful eye of the Lord, the watchful eye of Yahweh. Your way, your moment of choice is always before the Lord. The wise man, the the godly man in verse 21 ponders or levels off his path. He, again, you use the phrase from last week, he exercises integrity at that moment of choice. Even if it shows up in the bandage aisle, he walks out of the store and gets away from the door of that house. Job 31.1 says this as he's defending his life and, and before his accusers. Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? I think there's a, there's a, there's a service you can get for your, for your computer called Covenant Eyes based on that verse, Job 31.1. That, that helps keep you accountable and tracks records of where you've been on your website. When my son was 13, 14, 15, and we were working him through his, his manhood training, if you will, um, we had a web, you know, web reporter, and I'd get reports of where he went, you know, and we, uh, we talked about it and, 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 and worked it out together. And I encourage you, in addition to being dads of young ladies, you, you dads of young men, are you sending young men out who understand that those women don't belong to them? That those women, that, 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 that even if they're offering it, it's really not theirs to give. That God has made it for someone else. And until, they're, until they are married to that woman, they are to respect that. Van Leeuwen, a commentator, said this about Proverbs 5. The opposition of adultery to married love concretely shows that sin and folly cross the created boundaries while the play of eros within marriage illustrates freedom within form freedom within form you know when we were talking when i was talking to austin about sexuality as a young man and we were going through all that stuff i said you know it's kind of like a house with a fireplace it's great to build a fire in the fireplace keeps the house warm it's got atmosphere you know everybody likes a nice fire in the winter time we can't hardly do it anymore because of the air quality, but if we could, be nice. I said, but what if we build that fire in the living room outside the fireplace or in your bedroom? That destroys the whole house. 
See, the sexual power of, of marriage is, the sex, sorry, this, the power of sexuality is meant to burn in the fireplace of marriage, not anywhere else in the house, or it destroys it. Freedom within form. So men, don't take the golden idol. Don't take the bait. Don't trigger the trap that drops the cage that, that, that sends you in a spiral of, of loss and death. God's purposes and provisions are millions of times better than the substitutes of the world. Amen? Rosaria Butterfield has a very interesting Christian and sexuality story. I won't go into details, but she's written a book called Passion and Purity. I'm going to finish with this. She says, sexuality isn't about what we do in bed. Sexuality encompasses a whole range of needs, demands, and desires. Sexuality is more a symptom of our life's condition than a cause, more of a consequence than an origin. See, because if, if we just, you know, like last week, if we just tried to tell you whether it's, whether it's gluttony or, 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 or lust or envy, well, try harder, do more. You know, any young man who's tried to turn his way from pornography, from adultery, from, you know, from sexual sin will tell you trying harder doesn't work. The power, the, the biological processes and the emotional processes are too great. You need, you need help. You need a miracle. You need a supernatural touch from God through his son, through the spirit, through the church. And I wanted to finish by going to Ephesians 5. And Ephesians 5, yeah, Ephesians 5. We were in Proverbs 5. Let's look at Ephesians 5 for a minute. I'm just going to skip from the beginning to the end. There's great stuff all in the middle, but we, just, we don't have time to do the whole thing. It says verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And then as he goes through and unpacks that whole idea of, of, of sexuality and walking and being wise, Verse 15, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, as, but as wise. He, and he sprinkles this throughout, but he finishes very powerfully. In verse 31, he says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's the fireplace. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Whoa, where did that come from? You see, the, the image of marriage, the image of sexual union, as wonderful it is as a gift from God, is meant to point us to the union of Christ and us. The union, the eternal union, because Christ doesn't just, God just doesn't want us just to be workers in heaven for eternity. He doesn't want us to be sheep that he, you know, runs around. I know it says the Lord is our shepherd, but the Lord, he wants us to be in love. He wants us to have an intimacy of, 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 of experience and knowledge. The, the closest earthly existing and understanding we can have is a sexual union. That's powerful stuff. Christ and the church, union for, for, for eternity. So if you're experiencing difficulty and waywardness, what you need to look to, what you need to look for, is where are you in regards to the church? Not just going to church, but being with the church. Because this is, a, this is a one another thing. Again, if you've struggled against these things, you know you need someone else to hold you accountable. It's a well-worn phrase, and it, it's, it's hard to keep up with. 
but it's powerful if it's exercised rightly. You need the gospel that tells you you can't try hard enough on your own. That Christ came and gives you all those good deeds that you don't seem to be able to do. And he takes from you all that garbage, all that experience that you gained on himself on the cross. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was forsaking the son because of your and my sin, including the sexual sin. And when you, when you understand the power of God's grace and mercy at the cross, you then move forward, not just paying God back. Well, God saved me, so I guess I better be good and not look at that stuff. But you start to understand that it's what Christ died for so that it would be free from your life that you might live to experience his wholeness and his and in oneness with him. It's a symptom. It's a consequence of something deeper that's wrong with your relationship. If you have a consistent problem with sexual sin, take a hard look at if you really understand the gospel and what God through Christ has really done for you. For you. So I'm going to finish where we started, and I didn't plan this, but it was just too perfect. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is an important issue. It's a powerful issue. It's an issue that every man in this room has does or will struggle with. Father, I ask that you give us wisdom to seek out guidance, to seek out help, to be honest with the stuff in our life that you desire to purge, that you desire to, for us to surrender to you. So Lord, if it's, if it's, if it's someone outside of this room that they need to, to get together with and, and confront and lay this out, if it's someone within the, the church structure, Maybe it happens at the tables here tonight where men want to be, come clean and be held accountable. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that they would, they would take this opportunity to understand what you've done for them and how much more you have for them than the cheap substitute that the world offers. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Um, this one's local, so, you know, locally grown. Jim Cece.